Hello, I'm the producer of Murfreesboro Storytellers, and this is our final episode. We started 10 years ago as part of the city's bicentennial project, and since then, we visited many places and heard a lot of stories. We've had mayors, state representatives, and astronauts as guests. We've been to events like the Saturday Market in the middle half. So over the next hour, we're gonna show clips from past episodes, but for this final show, we want to hear one of the best stories that can be told the one about our host, John Hood. John has meant so much to our city and county, and we want you to find out more about his amazing life and career. So, for the final time, welcome to Murfreesboro Storytellers. Welcome to Murfreesboro Storytellers, a bicentennial celebration. I'm John Hood, will be serving as your host for the series. Our city is celebrating its 200th birthday, and each month of this over year long celebration has a theme to showcase everything that has made Murfreesboro so special. And our guests for this first program are Matt Murphy, local attorney, Pam Caius, community volunteer, and Jock Rucker, local attorney. As a matter of fact, Pam coincidentally is the wife of an attorney, so we have the, the bar well represented here. John, you're accustomed to sitting in this seat and asking the questions and telling the stories of people of Murfreesboro and Rutherford County, today is different. We're going to tell your story and we're honored to be able to do that because of all your years of dedicated service. And you know, you're usually telling these other stories, but you're a story in and of yourself. Um, we wanted to really begin with your early life and just go through it and find out, you know, what makes John Hood, John Hood. Oh my goodness, okay, well I'm flattered and honored, Mike. Thank you very much, pleased to be here. Uh, let's, let's talk about the first memories you have of Murfreesboro and Rutherford County. Well, the first memories I have, I guess uh, I, I originally lived on Manny Avenue where my father had a service station, also had a grocery store. And then when my uh, grandfather died down in the old Jefferson community, my grandmother and an aunt who had never married moved to Murfreesboro to be with us. So my father had owned two lots over on North Church Street that he had been vacant for some time. And together, what, what came out of the farm they sold, they built a house. I think it was, it was either $2,400 altogether or 48, two times 2,400, my aunt's portion and my mother's portion. And that's where I spent uh, my early life and many years uh, at 853 North Church Street. Now at that time, most people were in Murfreesboro or Rutherford County were living in the rural areas. Like you said, there was movement from farms to cities, but your family was already in the urban area. Yeah, my family, it, 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 from my standpoint, had always lived here. My father grew up in Milton community where he ran a grocery store and an apothecary, a, a pharmacy. And uh, then he moved to Murfreesboro and went into business uh, here in, in the city later. What was Murfreesboro like at that time? Do you, I mean, give us a flavor of, of what the community was like. Quite different from today, of course. Uh, my recollection of Murfreesboro at that time was all the businesses were on the square around the courthouse. And I remember on Saturday night, a lot of people would come to town and they would park on the square and visit. They, they usually knew most everybody or a lot of people and they would have a visit and have a time to, to shop. I lived on, as I mentioned, on North Church Street, 
and that was just, well, eight blocks from town. I would walk to town when I wanted to come to Woolworth or McClellan's to shop for toys or items that, that I was interested in. And I went to Critchlow School, which was at that time where the Rutherford County Health Department is located, and went to Critchlow, uh, which was right across the street from the old Central High School, which burned when I was, I believe, in the eighth grade. And then from there on, the high school classes were held at the Tennessee College for Women, which was on East Main Street, uh, where the Central High School is now located, or on rooms at MTSU, or MTSC it was at that time. So Central High School burned? It did, right. What about Critchlow? Was it fine? Oh, yeah, it, it was fine. It was just later uh, superseded by new schools and, and new offices and new locations. So how did you spend your time as a child? You mentioned going to Woolworths. Uh, that was typical of that age because you're wanting to go buy something or find a, something to play with or some candy. Right. What else did you do? Well, there was a, I mentioned I think it was a vacant lot there next to our house. My father had the two lots. There was a vacant lot on which uh, we played ball at the time, uh, baseball, softball, football, whatever it would be. And I was interested in, in I, got, I guess I got interested in broadcasting at the time, my father bought me a PA amplifier and a microphone and a speaker, and I would do the play-by-play -play of the ball games that were going on on vacant lot there, and that's how I got started initially in being interested in broadcasting and radio. Now, play-by-play, -play, are you talking about you were also participating in the ball games or just doing the play-by-play? -play? No, I was just doing the play-by-play, -play, yeah. I guess at times I was playing in the games, too, but yeah. At what age was this? Mm, early teens, I guess it was. And what kind of teams were playing? Just neighborhood groups. It was just groups that lived around there and got together and played ball from time to time. So that was good of your father to think about that. I mean, he had some intentionality in purchasing that for you. Do you know how that came about? Did he just bring it home one day, or did you think about I don't really doing it? recall. I'm sure I asked him if he would, or did, and he did, yeah. And so you think that experience that you had doing play-by-play, -play, I assume baseball. I think it was mostly baseball. Uh, um, led to a career in broadcasting. It did. It, it was my early interest in, in radio and in broadcasting. What's next? We're, we're, gonna, we're going to ease, pry up the top, see what's in under there. And we'll see, we got some bees uh, running around on top. And I'll put that lid there. Okay. And this is the inner board, John. Okay. We have to ease up the inner board. Uh, and you do that very gently because we don't want to upset the bees in any way. The bees on top, are they coming or going? They're, uh, they're just looking to see okay. what's going on. Okay. And see the bees on the bottom of the board here. How did the uh, uh, GNS thing come about? Did you walk over to the radio station and say, I'd like to work here? Or do you remember that important event and how you got that job? I'm sure I talked to Cecil Elrod Jr., who owned and operated the station. I don't remember exactly how I did, except through, through the diversified occupations, I think it's what led me there, because that's what I wanted to do. So Ira Daniel, later superintendent of schools, was the direct, director of DO, diversified occupations, and then he would contact an employer like WGNS, see if they were interested in having someone like me. And I was very fortunate they did. What were some of your first duties or assignments with the radio station? 
Well, with the radio station, we're typically board work, you know, working at the console and, and doing announcing of uh, commercials and in-between programs. We used to have a uh, Rutherford County spelling bee that the Rutherford County Schools uh, sponsored, and they'd bring students into the studio every month, and we'd have a spelling bee, and I'd give out the words to them, and then they would select a winner every year. We used to have the... Uh, Lions Club Exposition, which is like a, a state, a, a uh, county fair. And we would also do broadcasts from the uh, Lions Club Exposition. It was on the Shelbyville Highway where the old fairgrounds used to be, long since gone. Did you get involved in any kind of sports casting back then? I used to do, I used to do the color. Uh, Cecil Elrod uh, made a trip up to Washington, D.C. Uh, many years ago and hired a guy by the name of Ray Duffy who came here and was our announcer, had a tremendous Yankee brogue. Uh, but everybody came to love him because he became such a wonderful person and became a part of the community. And I worked, I did the color and, and Ray did the play-by-play. -play. We did Central High School and, and, and Middle Tennessee State College back in those days. Central High School, what were they like back then in, in sports? Were they one of the prominent teams? In we, the had, we had some very good teams. We had a, a gentleman, particularly Lee Pate was a coach when I was in school, he was very successful as a high school coach. An inch of wood, we're going to do the same thing. Okay. An inch of wood has about the same resistance capacity of a human rib. So I could tell you two things. One, if you can break this, you could break a human rib. But nobody's ever going to hold a human rib out. It's not right. quite that easy. Second, if you could break an inch of wood, if you took that power and put it in the tip of my mm -hmm. chin, that's probably going to stun me enough yeah. for you to be able to yeah. get away. Because if you've ever been hit right in the tip of the chin, it drives that jawbone back yeah. into these nerve ganglion, and it, it can hurt. It's you know, the old phrase, see stars, you're going <laughs> to see stars. So let's do the same thing. Just come on and hit it just like you did the pad. Just come on through with it. All right. <laughs> oh, my Good goodness. shot. <laughs> Way to go, man. The other thing we wanted to talk about were your Middle Tennessee years. So we're moving into the, the 1950s and, and talking about, you know, your choice, your decision to go to Middle Tennessee uh, for, for your education. And I'm wondering why did you choose Middle Tennessee? Was it really the only choice or did you think about going to some other college? I don't think I thought about going anywhere else. It was here and I'd known it all my life and, and it was just the usual thing, you went through Central High School, graduated, went to college. And I was very fortunate to be able to go to Middle Tennessee State College at that time. And your, your undergraduate degree was in social science. Why social science? <laughs> well, really, uh, working in radio, I would have would like to have majored in speech. At that time, MTSC did not have a speech major, and I wound up with a, a double major in social science. So let's talk about social science. What was that back then? Mike, I, I'm at a loss to be able to explain much about it. Political science somewhat was included in the classes and uh, just had a lot of good opportunities there to, to be able to uh, learn about government, about people, and about uh, the operation of uh, a, a community like, in, like Murfreesboro. In addition to going to classes and studying the social sciences, what else did you participate in in those days? Well, in high school, at Central High School, we had a program called Diversified Occupations, where you would go to school half a day 
and would work the other half a day. So I was very fortunate in my senior year to have diversified occupations and, and then worked at WGNS Radio at that time. So when I was at MTSU, MTSC I should say again, then I, I continued to work at the radio station even after the diversified occupations. So typically with the college days, I'd go to school in the morning, work in the afternoon, the evening. So during those years then where you were at uh, Middle Tennessee and you were working for the radio station, um, at some point you must have been thinking about this is a career I'd like to have, like full time. I, yes, I was. I, I did, yeah. That was what I was thinking. I'd like to continue on into it as, as long as I can. And how did, how did that come about? Like where, where did that transition occur? Well, uh, like after I left the, uh, graduated, I continued to, uh, from high school, continued to work during college, as I said. Along the way, I also got married. My lovely lady by the name of Marilyn Stockard became my wife for 65 years, and we, we enjoyed each other and had a good family and was very much a part of the community. So I continued on working full-time while I was in, in college. And then, as I, as I recall recently for telling someone, uh, on June the 6th of 1954, I graduated from Middle Tennessee State College. On June the 11th, we had our first child, Gary Warren Hood. And on July the 21st, I was on a Greyhound bus headed for Fort Knox, Kentucky, and two years in the United States Army. Those were some busy times. They were, really were. Yeah. Now, uh, you mentioned Marilyn. Um, how did you meet? You know, I'm not for sure. She worked at Middle Tennessee Electric Membership Corporation. And I, I'm not for sure I can recall. We just knew each other through school, I think was the way it was, because she went to Central High School, too. What are some of the things that you think about in terms of your experiences with Marilyn? Well, we had, we had uh, family times that were, were special, of course, with the three children. And we had always had special times uh, at, uh, well, Thanksgiving, Christmas, as any, any family would. And, and vacations together were especially memorable. So we could all go together. And then you had to head off to Fort Knox. Uh, you headed there. Um, was that by choice or, or were you recruited into that? No, I was, re I was drafted. I had been deferred uh, because I was in, in, in uh, college, college yeah. and had an education deferment as soon as I graduated. Uh, th that was over. And, and like I say, within weeks I was uh, ca called up and was on, on my way for basic training. So you had to do the basic training and then were you told that uh, or did you get to choose what you were going to do? in your Army career? One day they, they called about six or seven guys and took them in a van and over somewhere else on Fort Knox. And they were selected to be in the CIA if they wanted to be, counterintelligence agency. Then the next day they took about 10 or 12 of us in the same routine to be in the Army Security Agency, which I'd never heard of at the time. I knew of CIA. So we went over to a place for being interviewed. There was a sergeant interviewing everybody that came over that time, one at a time. That gentleman was Bill Morgan from Christiana, Tennessee. He said, sign here. <laughs> Don't ask any questions. <laughs> You're in. <laughs> and I was in, and it was a great choice. What, what a coincidence that turned out to be. What all did you do there, and did you end up leaving Fort Knox for, for any period of time? Well, after basic training, I, I went to Fort Devens, Massachusetts, which is where we were for the rest of our time and that was the Army Security Agency location where I took, took training there. Uh, took uh, 
Morse code intercept. It was 1717 was the name of the, of the specialty. But you took Morse code and you, it, it became so fast you had to type. You couldn't write it fast enough. So you started out where it was slow and slow and slower. And, you, and I learned to type taking Morse code, uh, being an intercept uh, code operator. And, and then later on, I went over to uh, another, another section of the training there and, and, and worked as an instructor. What made you decide not to make military a full-time career? I don't know. I just I don't think I ever had any particular interest in it. I was glad to do the two-year service and do the best I could at that time, but it just never did interest me. I had other interests. I guess to get back home and work in broadcasting. When you came back, at some point you, you went from WGNS to WMTS. Well, when I came back from the Army, Virgil Trim was the manager of WMTS at that time, at that time and, and he offered me a job, and I went to WMTS after the service. Were both the radio stations similar? They were just competitors or any WMTS was daytime. They had a frequency of 860 at that time, and they only could operate during daytime hours. Otherwise, their signal would interfere with another station in another part of the country. Now, WGNS was full-time, uh, I guess most all radio stations are today. Were your assignments the same? Well, I did a lot of, uh, we did a lot of news work when I was at WMTS. We had uh, two-way radios that we put in our cars where we could communicate back and forth, obviously. Uh, at that time, we had a fire siren in Mur Murfreesboro, shows the difference in size. But when there was a fire in Murfreesboro, that siren would go off. And everybody in the town knew there was a fire somewhere. You didn't necessarily know where. But what we would do with the two-way radios, we would drive to that fire location. We would get it on the police radio and give a report. And I used to have people to tell us that when I heard that fire siren, I'd cut the WMTS because I knew you'd have a report very soon as to what the fire was and where it was. So we uh, got to be known as a particular news type of station. We traveled to the Wat Lao Buddhist Temple located on Old Nashville Highway to visit with Chanto Sarino. Chanto has been a driving force behind the establishment of the Laotian community in Murfreesboro. He's also a dedicated volunteer serving on various boards and commissions, including county commissioner for the 21st district and the city's homeless task force. Chanto, we're delighted to have you as a guest on Murfreesboro Storytellers. You've been a leader in the development of the Laotian community in Murfreesboro and Rutherford County. How long have you been living here? Oh, I have been living here since uh, 1972 when I came to Rutherford County or Murfreesboro, Tennessee. The next stage or period in your life has to do with your career outside of broadcasting mm -hmm. when you moved on to, uh, to work at Samsonite. Uh, I think in 1960 to 66, you were a personnel manager. Um, so why, why did you uh, end up at Samsonite? Did somebody uh, recruit you or did you decide to move out of broadcasting at that time? Whitney Stegall was an attorney here at that time and a very good friend and he had been the legal advisor for Samsonite. They were called Schwader Brothers was the name of the corporation. Schwader Brothers, that was a family name that formed it. And then the product name was Samsonite. And Whitney, and they wanted somebody for, for, for personnel, we call it human resources today. And Whitney recommended me for the job. I interviewed for it. 
and, and was accepted. It was a, quite a change in my work experience, but quite an enjoyable change. So you started working then in personnel, and you hadn't worked in personnel before. You were in broadcasting, but you worked well with people, obviously. Um, what was that like in terms of what things did you do? Obviously, people think of benefits, you know, sure. with personnel, but other issues that you were involved in. Tom Morgan was my boss, the director of industrial relations, and and we were main thing we were doing was hiring, and we were hire two. We, we we'd bring in to work two people a day, trying to give them time to 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 train and be ready for the job and be effective in the job. So uh, we were interviewing people regularly uh, each day. That was what I did most of my time, I guess, was interviewing and then making a selection. And we'd set up a uh, committee of persons throughout the community, unknown, hopefully, to anybody, somebody from, you know, Eagleville community or the Las Casas community or, or Woodbury, that we could then use them as a, Now, anybody would come in and give us some personal references, and, and we understand that expect that. But these were people that, that were unknown to them but knew who they were, and we would, the, and we would route the uh, re request to them, and they would give us a real breakdown on that person, what they knew about them. Were you looking for any particular skills, or was it more about character at that point? I think it was more about character, because it was a very basic uh, work, very uh, repetitive uh, on assembly line work, you know. What happened to Samsonite? I guess it was... Uh, uh, labor union organization uh, that, 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 that it finally caused it to, to well to move part of the operation to Arkansas, and uh, I presume still making card tables and chairs there. So at that point, is that why you had to change jobs, or did you leave Samsonite before it left town? Oh no, I, I, I left long before it left town. I was there for what five and a half years, I guess it was. I had the opportunity to go to MTSU from there to, to work. They were starting out uh, in private fundraising and set up a development office. At that time, you know, MTSU, C, MTSU, UT, whatever, you know, they're state funded. So why would they need private funds? But to do anything extra to build and expand in various ways that uh, the, the publicly funded institutions started fundraising privately. And that's when they started the development office. That's when I went to MTSU. When you got there, then, what were some of your uh, first goals or duties? Were you working under someone in that development office initially? Oh, yes. I worked for Bob Abernathy, it was at the time. He was director of field services, and that included uh, public relations, then development, and uh, alumni associations. So we had the three directors that were under him. Now, these days, m much of fundraising that you associate with are reaching out to alumni who have been very successful right. and they, they have some wherewithal, and you re recruit them uh, to, to contribute. Right. Uh, were you involved in trying to reach some of those people that had the wherewithal, or were you trying to just get anybody uh, connected to MTSU oh, to get? Oh, absolutely. We were Randy Wood, 1940 graduate of um, Middle Tennessee from Gallatin, Tennessee, had been very successful in starting dot records, if you recall them, from many years ago, and had Randy's record shop at Gallatin, Tennessee, in WHIN. And Randy set up the MTSU Foundation to do private fundraising. As I recall, he donated $100,000 or something like that, which at that time was big, big money, of course, and set up the foundation. 
And again, uh, Whitney Stegall was one very much involved with the foundation and other people in the community. They set up a board of trustees. And so I, in effect, worked with the foundation and for MTSU staff. Was it tough to raise money back then? Do you oh, feel like it was a challenge? It was a real challenge because people wondered, why does a state institution need private money? Don't they have enough? You know, and, and, and to do, like I say, to do extra things and special things, they had to go into private fundraising. So what stands out as some of your success stories back then? Well, we had, uh, I guess, many successes, but uh, mainly through, the, originally through alumni chapters in the respective communities where they were located, through businesses here in the community. Uh, we would go back, yeah, go, go to them and, and get them interested in particular programs that were going on at the university that might be directly related to, to their work and be able to help them to be able to expand and improve. While we, you were at MTSU, uh, you were an administrative assistant to President Melvin Scarlett. Tell us about that relationship and what he well, was Well, I, I was in the development office first, I think, for five years it was, and Dr. Scarlett came on uh, from Minnesota, I believe is where he was, before coming here. And I had the opportunity to move down to the president's office and work with him directly as administrative assistant. And he was here for a number of years, too. He I mean, was. he's one of the, the, the presidents that stand out. McPhee's been here a long time. Oh, yeah. Um, but any, anything that you, you, you remember about those days uh, working with him? Well, he was, he was very uh, aggressive in, in, in getting the fundraising, continuing to improve the fundraising and the contacts and, and the relationships and working particularly also with state government. So he was a joy to work with. You were at Samsonite, but then you went into the banking uh, community. You were at uh, SunTrust Bank, or it wasn't SunTrust Bank at the time. Well, uh, that, to the university and then to the bank. Okay. Uh, it was Murfreesboro Bank and Trust Company at that time. And then we decided to expand later to move into some other communities. We, well, we bought a bank in Carthage. We bought a bank in McMinnville. We bought a bank in, in Franklin County, Winchester. So it was difficult to be called Murfreesboro Bank and Trust Company in Winchester or wherever. So we changed our name to Mid-South Bank. And that made a more uh, typical name. It worked with any in a community we were in as we expanded. What was the banking uh, business or industry like compared to manufacturing at Samsonite or MTSU? Well, different in many ways, but also it involved people and, and your relationship to people. With banking, as much as anything, was, was a relationship and developing uh, uh, groups and, and uh, well, relationships, as I said, uh, to, to get people to bank and bring organizations uh, with you. So were you involved in community and public relations with the banks, or what was your Well, role? marketing was, was, was vice president of marketing, which was uh, all of that, as a matter of fact. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. um, so your role was to market um, this particular bank to the community, and maybe even to the, the middle Tennessee region, uh, to convince them to do their banking there. Absolutely, yeah. And we worked you... on getting newcomers. I had a good friend at State Farm Insurance who would always send me a, a list of people who were coming in once they notified the people in the house, in house at State Farm, give me, and I would be on the phone and call them in Vicksburg, Mississippi, or wherever they were, to introduce them uh, to the bank and tell them I'd you know, appreciate doing the banking when you, when you get here. I'd uh, love to meet you and, and work with you. We would do luncheons at the bank. We had a, a nice dining room. Well, it was a boardroom. Actually, we used it for a dining room as well, where we would bring in the newcomers 
all the newcomers, particularly at MTSU every, every year when new faculty were coming on board, we'd have a luncheon for the new faculty at MTSU and, and, and get their bank. In a community like this where development is, is growing and there are so many developers and builders in mm -hmm. town, I mean, the banking business is critical, is it not? Oh, very definitely, yeah, very critical. Uh, so what kind of things were you involved with? Because it's one thing to convince some people, hey, do your personal business here. It's another for the bank itself. I mean, it's not just you, but the, the bank to convince some local companies or businesses to be able to, to, to put their money in your bank. Sure, we, we'll be regularly calling on the local businesses, retail, manufacturing, wholesale, whatever, to be able to encourage them to come and, 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 and at least give us a portion of your business and, and eventually maybe all of the business. And then the next step from there is not just business, but to be involved in civic leadership or nonprofit organizations that help the community, those in need. And you've been involved in that as well. I have been. And back in those days, you know, almost every bank, had a member of their staff in a civic club. Because that was one of the first things you did, the Exchange Club, the Lions Club, the Rotary Club, Kiwanis. Uh, every bank would have a person would go to be a part of that organization. And so that way they had the good uh, working back and forth. Now you don't find that uh, nearly as apparent as it used to be. What have we lost from that, do you think, that, that sense of community and some of the people being involved? I mean. Be, Maybe it's because when you grow, you, you lose some of that personal touch. I don't know what it is. but Apparently you do, unfortunately, but it is so important, I think, that that helps you maintain that contact and that relationship to be able to do things together for the community or for your business or for the bank. We actually have kind of a cool day for July, don't you think? Very pleasant, as a matter of fact. Now, this market runs from June through October, is Yes, that sir. We open the first Saturday of June, and we run through the month of October. So, actually, it's about 22 weeks. Okay. The hours are 8 to 12. We have 57 spaces. Um, we opened the market with only 12 mm -hmm. back in 2010. This is our sixth season. We have Tennessee farm-related products okay. owned. And that includes, of course, the great veggies, um, fruits, flowers, plants, eggs, honey. Already a familiar name and face in the community, John Hood would soon take on the challenge of public service, one that would eventually take him to the state capitol. His first opportunity would come as he was chosen to serve on the city school board. At that time, it was an appointed position. The city council appointed you. John Rucker, local attorney, Jock Rucker's son serving now, was on the uh, city school board, and he, he went off the council and the board and recommended me for that. So it was an appointed position. And then later, I was elected to the uh, county commission, at that time, the Rutherford County Quarterly Court. Uh, there was a lawsuit uh, started by Sam Ingram, and uh, Earl Hinton of MTSU on one man, one vote rule. We had at that time, I believe it was 54 members of the uh, Rutherford County Quarterly Court, and it met quarterly as, as the name. Four of those were from Murfreesboro, and the others were from the county. We had a very rural county at that time, as you suggested earlier. So the, they initiated a lawsuit, the one man, one vote rule, 
And that, at that time, I, I decided to run for the county court and was elected to that. Why was it called the Rutherford County Court? You had judicial responsibilities. So you were a magistrate at that time. You could perform weddings. You could do various things of that type, the least of which I enjoyed doing, but I did, did several at that time. You were called on to do it. So that was the reason that it was called court, and they only met, as I said, quarterly. So we, we came in as new members. We said, I don't remember the budget of the county at that time. You only meet quarterly to operate the, the, the Rutherford County. So we changed it to be a monthly meeting and started meeting monthly. And it was meeting always at 10 o'clock in the morning. Everybody, almost everybody pretty well had a full-time job, not that you couldn't take off. But we said, you know, let's make, let's make this a, an evening meeting. And we kept the July meeting in the daytime, which was always the budget meeting. So we started making meeting monthly I at night. And that time the county judge over the county court would pretty well run the court. He would call committee meetings, conduct committee meetings, and, and dismiss you. And then we were electing chairman. We said, wait a minute, as a chairman of the committee, why am I not serving as a chairman and operating the committee? So we changed all that committee structure and became a very working uh, uh, county commission and changed the name. How did this early service with the school board and then the county court, as it was called at the time, a quarterly court, how did that enhance your effectiveness? In other words, later when you became a legislator, you started to know how things work, I guess. It gave me experience yeah, with, with the various parts of government to be able to understand how things come together. What made you decide to run for the legislature? What was it about uh, what you could do there? It just To me, it gave me another opportunity to, to be of service. Uh, it was just, a, I guess, something I'd had thought in the back of my mind all my life. My father was a sergeant-at-arms for the House of Representatives in, in uh, young years. I did years. not know that. used to ride the Greyhound bus to Nashville every day to be sergeant-at-arms. He would bring me back a copy of the Tennessee Blue Book, and I've always enjoyed looking at that. Never would I have thought that one day my picture and my bio would be in there too, along with the other members. It just one of those things that's sort of in the back of your mind that, that you might like to do, and I had the opportunity at the time to do so. And then when you got there, obviously, as someone who is dedicated to community service, you were trying to achieve some things or make some things happen, whether it be in education, or child seat safety, or whatever it is, uh, what are some of the things you wanted to achieve when you got there? Well, anything to improve education, improve the funding for education, and be able to approve new programs as they, as they came available, which was through the State Department of Education, but the funding had to come out of the legislature to be able to make them to happen. Uh, one, of the, one of the bills that uh, took pride in we had a very low percentage of uh, seatbelt wearers. You could not be stopped for not wearing your seatbelt. You had to be stopped for some other reason, and then you could be fined for it. But we changed the law so that you could be stopped for not wearing your seatbelt and, and, and set a fine for it. Uh, prior to that time, we had about 68% usage of seatbelts. It went up to 85%, I think, after the... the, the the bill was thought. So the idea of that was not to collect fines, but to, to save lives. And hopefully, right, because if you increase the usage, you're going to reduce, uh, the, hopefully, uh, hopefully, accidents and accidents fatal and accidents. Casualties. Uh -huh. right. Right. Uh -huh. 
and that was uh, successful. I mean, that, that did that. Was that modeled off of other states or other states that were already probably doing that, right? I, I'm sure they were. I don't remember particularly. We just thought it was something that needed to be done for, for this state. Uh, During the time you were at the legislature and then you had experience with MTSU, uh, I don't know if you initiated it or how it got initiated, but you were a participant in it in the legislature. Was the posters at the Capitol? Mm -hmm. I didn't initiate it, uh, just enjoyed participating, but MTSU started it, and then it grew to other institutions in the, in the state, where that they have students to do posters about the, the state, the community, the institution, and they have it on display for a day in the uh, office building at, at the state capitol, at the legislature. And that's an opportunity, I think, for students to highlight their research and to show what yeah, MTSU is doing. Uh, what would you do as a legislature as a part of that? Well, I would always try to participate, attend, and be there. But it, I did not know we had that much undergraduate research going on. But it's amazing when you see those posters and find out the projects and the programs that the students are working on. We're at the Half Marathon, and we are pleased to visit with Judge Toby Gilly. Good morning, Toby. Good morning, John. Good to see you and good to be here this morning. Are you a regular participant in this event? I have never missed it. This is my 12th in a row consecutively. Wonderful. This is a half marathon, right? A half marathon. How long will it take you to run it? I will finish it probably in an hour and 45 to an hour and 50 minutes. Are, are you a regularly a uh, physical uh, participant in, in several events? I run about 60 miles a week or about 2,000 miles a year. I try to do at least two half marathons and one full marathon a year. Okay. So, John, in 1976, the bicentennial year, you know, when everybody was celebrating the 200 years, I think you were honored as a distinguished alumnus for community service. So, already at that time, you know, community service was something you were being identified as someone uh, who did that, who, mm -hmm. who had uh, a desire to serve and give back. Why is service so important to you? I just think we have a debt to, to pay. That, that we need to pay back for the life that we have, for the community we have, for the uh, success we have, and uh, uh, it's just always been important to me. You've been quoted a number of times uh, when you talk about that same thing, service is the rent you pay for room on this earth. Um, why space did Space on earth, yeah. For space okay, on yeah. earth, yeah. Why did that uh, quote, uh, resonate with you, and do you know who who said it the first time? I'm not sure where where I, I got it from, and I I've, and then I've always said that, uh, well, service is the rent you pay for the space you occupy on Earth. And I said I've just been trying to keep my rent current, and that's a great way to look at life. Yeah. I, I think, and now it's probably several people have have been quoted as saying that, but if you look it up uh, on the internet, you know who's credited with no, that? I Muhammad Ali. I did not realize Which that. is interesting, you know, that, uh, that I think he I had, read had that, that, uh, that yeah. quote uh, connected to him. Um, and you were past president of the MTSU Alumni Association as well. So, I mean, a lot of people graduate from MTSU and they move on and they have careers and they may, may not even ever come back to Murfreesboro. But you, you stayed and you were involved in the Alumni Association. Right. What stands out during your period there in terms of things that you were involved in? Well, we were, of course, trying to uh, encourage alumni to come back to the university 
for various events, uh, sporting events, but cultural events as well, because always had a very uh, active uh, theater arts program and come back for things of that nature, not just in the community, to come back for homecoming during a football season and to be able to participate in still in the activities of the, of the, of the, of the university. And so we were always working to, uh, to support anything that the university was trying, university was trying to do uh, to better the community. You mentioned uh, cultural arts, too, and I know you were involved with the Center for the Arts uh, Board, and during those years you were trying to, to achieve some things and did. Uh, what stands out in that? Well, when Joe area? Jackson was mayor, the post office moved from where the Cultural Arts Center is now to uh, the, uh, well, on West Main Street at that time, I guess it was. So the, the building was vacant. It was built in 1909, as I recall, and the post office commission at that time had architects that went to respective communities and designed the building to fit into the community. You know, they didn't just have one standard design, so they send this to Murfreesboro. So we had a very unique building. So he said, uh, you, you all find something uh, that would use the building. So we had the Cultural Arts Commission, and uh, so he asked us to do that. So we got together and... and decided we would convert it into the, uh, the, the cultural arts building that it is now. We had a, a group of uh, citizens in the community were involved with that. We had two ladies that went to the Christie Houston Foundation, which, you know, came about from uh, the, the hospital sale of many years ago, and got a grant for $500,000 to convert the building. The problem was we didn't know what it would take to convert the building. We had not had any estimates. It turned out we needed $900,000. <laughs> so what we did, we went to the city and to the county and got $200,000 from each and made the $900,000 to convert it. And, and so that brought about the, the building to where it is today. Are you pleased that with that legacy that it's, that it's stayed in the community and that you know it seems to be very successful? Um, children's theater uh, at that facility. Uh, there are uh, performances all the time. Of course, COVID slowed it down a little bit, but um, you know that's one of the things that uh, is is important to this community. Oh, it is absolutely. I've been very pleased to see it continue to to flourish. It's a very small venue, but also it's very effective for the productions and the events that that take place there. The Exchange Club has been around a long time. 1951. 1951. So where were you in 1951? I was in school, I believe, at that time. But you were a charter member of the Exchange right. Club. Bill Allen and I are the two final living charter members of the Exchange Club. And again, we mentioned John Woodfin in the interview. Mr. John came to me and said, I've got a Mr. Gentleman I want you to meet and get acquainted with him. He's here to organize a new club called the Exchange Club, and I want you to know him. As a result of that, I met Mr. the, the gentleman and, uh, and, and, and joined and became a member. <clears throat> I went back to my home with my mother and my aunt, and my aunt loaned me $25 for the joining fee for the Exchange Club. You mentioned Bill Allen, and there may be some people listening or watching this that don't know Bill Allen. Veteran of World War II and of Normandy Beachhead, right. Right, and then I think he was on a ship that was hit with a torpedo. He, he was. Uh -huh. So um, he's someone that you were 
involved with in the, in the exchange club early on. Oh yes, from day one. Uh, in addition to being a charter member, I had the privilege of being national president of exchange in 1980-81. You also served as president of the Chamber of Commerce, which, you know, you've been involved in these uh, nonprofit organizations like the Exchange Club, but the, the Chamber of Commerce is involved in that recruitment mm. and getting business to, to come here. Um, and then in addition to that, I guess after serving in that role or around that time, you were asked to do ribbon cuttings and groundbreakings, and for a long <laughs> period of time, you've gone to all of these events. We have an organization known as the Chamber Diplomats that uh, uh, go forth to do ribbon cuttings, groundbreakings, and events in the community. And I've been a part of that group for about 26 years. It's just a real pleasure to go out and meet the new people coming into the community, learn about their new business, and be able to spread the word about them. You know, one year we had, I think, 128 ribbon cuttings and uh, groundbreakings. Not nearly as many since the pandemic, but we still have a lot of that happening every, every week. Which is great, the, the growth of the community. Uh, one of the things that stands out in my mind, you know, I've only been here since the early 2000s mm -hmm. as a reporter and then involved in, you know, uh, some of the political aspects, public right. affairs for the Department of Safety. And I go to some events. You know, I was at MTSU as a, as a, a reporter there. Right. And I see you everywhere. And that's just the places when I'm there. <laughs> so probably three quarters more are the places that I'm not there, but I know you're there. Um, you are a fixture at all these places. And uh, it just like, it's amazing your commitment and your dedication to serving your community in that way. And we've talked about the quote and everything, but the other aspect of that is that's that's work like you've got to be ready get there logistically wherever it is and 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 you know there's probably times where you don't, you're not feeling quite up to it either health wise or just like I'd rather be doing something else yeah. but you're there well I just I just enjoy it I feel it's a way of paying back to the community as I say and being involved getting to know and meet new people and you work with Kelly Beam on a lot of these oh yes absolutely right yeah she does a great job yeah, we have uh, usually 70, 80 uh, volunteers in the diplomat group. Uh, they don't all make every event every time, but we'll have 30 or 40 uh, people at a typical ribbon cutting. Why is it important that we celebrate that? I think to let these people know we're welcoming them to their community, we want them to be a part of the community, that we want to be able to help them to be successful. And then the... Uh the Rutherford County uh, 911 building, uh, which is out there on the west end uh, in the growing section mm -hmm. of Murfreesboro, I think you were involved in another commission with it because you now have, your name is on that building. Right? Well, I'm well, on the Emergency Communication District County Board. Still to this day? Uh, oh, uh, yeah. still to this day, and treasurer. And I've been on it initially. I, I worked with. Uh, the, uh, the, the, the folks organizing it in the beginning back in the 80s, I guess it was, 80, 90, uh, 1990, 1985, somewhere along in there, to, to, to have a referendum of the uh, citizens of the community to, to organize the 911 uh, organization. So we had a referendum at that time. It was the highest percentage of positive votes to set up a 911 organization for the community and I think one is 
one county has exceeded it since that time. So what do you credit that with? Or, or what do other people credit that for, the success in that? I think people are aware that they needed a, an, an emergency system like that to be able to, to handle uh, emergencies when they happen. That's redundant. Uh, before, you know, you had a number to call for the fire department, a number to call for the police department, a number to call to, to a funeral home to get an ambulance and whatever. We didn't have private, we didn't have public ambulance service at that time. What was it like uh, when someone came to you and said, we want to name this building after you? Well, I'm very, very flattering. I, I'm, I'm just honored to have that, to have that to happen. And then I think there is a street there's a John Hood street in town. And there, actually, I think there's a photo of you uh, outside that, that street sign. That's at Rockvale Meadows, as it is. A, uh, a developer called me one time, and uh, somebody representing the developer said, well, we want to name a street for you at Rockvale Meadows. I said, oh, come on. My goodness. But anyway, they did, and it is there. Tell us about the Elvis uh, shows, five two times a year, one year, and three times the next year, yeah. I guess. Yeah. How was it to uh, deal with Elvis, the great entertainer that he was? John, it was easy for me to understand why you never saw Elvis on Johnny Carson. Because Elvis Presley was too nice a person. Uh, Johnny Carson would have probably eaten his lunch. So I'm sure the Colonel had a lot to do and say about that, but he... He, that's that's what I remember most about him off stage. Okay. Now, when the, his band struck up 2001, a Space Odyssey theme, and he took the stage, he was a different person entirely. I can imagine. I can believe that. You know that I've been a long-term member of the community since I moved here, right. and, and my brother had worked for a Bridgestone, still does. Okay. And when I decided to locate here, he said, you know the place you've got to go? You need to go to Murfreesboro. Mm -hmm. That's where you need to find a place to right? live. Uh -huh. To me, that, the first thing that that says to me is there's something about Murfreesboro that stands out that people say that's a community, that's a place you want to live. What do you want people to know about Murfreesboro? I think Murfreesboro is a giving community. Uh, everybody is interested in, in trying to make things better for the whole community and make it a better place to live. To be able to uh, help uh, bring about uh, businesses to our community to make it uh, a, a place where you don't have to drive somewhere else to get anything done. A place to be able to raise a family, get an education all the way through the doctorate at MTSU and be whatever you would like to be. One of the things that people say about Murfreesboro, I think it's true, is that it has, it has all the amenities of a city with a small town charm. That's one of the things we've been able to preserve, I think, is that small town charm that makes it different from so many communities. I, I, I agree. The other thing we wanted to talk about was uh, your family. So during all this time, you are giving back to your community and very involved professionally, but you had a family. You raised three children. Mm -hmm. And that's always a tension or a conflict between uh, doing what you need to do in your profession and in the community and then making sure you're there for your family. I've been very fortunate, and maybe sometimes the various things I've been doing, I've, I've taken away from time that I should have been with the family, but they've been very, very good to me. They've, they've been very uh, successful and, 
and never a problem and just enjoyed all the, all the times over the years. So you have three children. They're all obviously adults now. Yeah. Uh, what are they doing? Uh, let's share uh, some Well, of Gary, your... the oldest, has been uh, working in TV production for a number of years. Uh, through his involvement, we've been able to attend a lot of wonderful shows over the years. The, the, uh, the Oscars at one time, uh, be able to uh, attend uh, the Kennedy Center Honors for a number of years. And the, you mentioned the picture with Dolly Parton. Uh, and that was made at the Kennedy Center Honors, I think, with Gary and and with uh, some other people there at at, at the Kennedy Center. Gary has recently uh, moved to Florida and and semi-retired, partly due to the pandemic and the lack of work in the television industry, like it was for a while. Our daughter Rebecca lives in in Franklin. She's married to Tom Hagen. They have a daughter, Kristen, is married to Josh Waters, whose family is in the trucking business. And they have a daughter, Callie, who is, uh, lives in Mississippi. They live in uh, Meridian, Mississippi. The other son, Mark, works in banking and mortgage lending and works at this time for SunTrust Bank. And he's in this community. He's in this community, right. Uh, and then you have, as you mentioned, grandchildren. Right. We have the four grandchildren. Uh, Gary has twins. Uh, Rebecca, I mentioned, has the daughter, uh, Kristen. And then Mark has a son, Robin. Obviously, you've had some time to think about what you want your legacy to be. And some of the people have done that for you because you've been awarded numerous times. I think, uh, uh, you know, the education, the celebration of education, uh, gala, the business legend, the, the naming of the building, uh, the Journalism Hall of Fame, uh, which must be meaningful to you, uh, the American Red Cross Hero Award, the Doug Young Lifetime Achievement Award. I mean, it goes on and on. And then recently, the SAGE Award which is uh, something that they give to someone who uh, is not only giving to the community, but you're, you're demonstrating the ability to live well. Um, uh, I think it's okay, it's fair to ask your age. And, uh, My age is 90. 90, and you're still out there doing uh, things that maybe some 60-year-olds do. 32431. <laughs> um, it's just, uh, uh, I mean, part of it you probably feel like you're blessed health-wise to be able to do it. Uh, but some people stop moving and give up uh, long before you have, and you're, and you're still going. So that's, that's really kind of a testimony to people uh, to keep moving, to remain active. I think it's important to, to, to re remain active in some way or another, uh, active in the community, active mentally, or and certainly active physically, to be able to... Uh, then continue to be of service and do things that are worthwhile. And you probably want to continue doing this as, for as long as you can. I hope so, yes. What do you I'm want? I'm afraid to quit. Yeah. <laughs> There's something to be said about that. They yeah. say when you stop moving, you yeah. know, that's, that's the Very end. Very definitely. Um, what do you want your legacy to be, or what would you like people to, to remember about your life uh, that you think would be helpful? I've tried to give back to the community, and again, as we, as we say, to to uh, compensate for the uh, the life I've had, for the uh, many privileges I've had, the many opportunities, many successes I've had, and many friends that I've enjoyed knowing over the years. I want to personally, as the person that's been fortunate enough and honored enough to interview, to say thank you. Hmm. 
for all that you've done for our community and for your hometown. You're, you're a native son and um, you've done more than your share. Uh, I salute you and I thank you uh, as a part of this community for doing what you've done. Well, Mike, you're very kind. Thank you. I've been very blessed.